For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Tonight's chant will be the Metta Sutta, but we will start with the the repentance verse, which we chant three times. Everyone, please remain muted as well, just as a reminder. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Meta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented, and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being and any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours. Let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death.
May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, Bodhisattva Mahasattvas. Wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita. When he is ready, Tygen will introduce tonight's speaker. <clears throat> Good evening, everyone. Welcome all. Uh, for uh, newcomers, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. And I'm really happy to have with us tonight Zenshin Florence Kaplow, uh, old friend. So many of you know her or have heard her before. But for those who haven't, uh, Florence is a Zen priest in the Suzuki Roshi lineage. Uh, she's also a Unitarian Universalist minister and minister of the uh, Unitarian Church in Urbana-Champaign. She's also uh, an environmentalist, professional botanist in a, pr a previous life, but still. <laughs> and uh, she's the co-editor of a really wonderful, important book called The Hidden Lamp, which um, gives stories of uh, women teachers and practitioners from back to Buddhist time, from India, uh, Japan, China, Korea, Japan, United States, and many other places. Wonderful stories, which are it's a great Dharma resource, but also uh, there are commentaries on those stories by modern uh, uh, Buddhist teachers. So it, I recommend that book very highly. Uh, Florence, thank you for being here tonight. Um, take it away. Oh, as always, Tygen, I'm grateful for your invitation to speak to this wonderful Sangha. I uh, have loved being with you in person and uh, also through the pandemic in this way. So, um, and I know that the Sangha circle has widened to far beyond Chicagoland. And that's a really beautiful uh, gift 
in a tough time. And I'm so happy that you are continuing to offer the Dharma um, and responding to circumstances. That's our job as Zen people to appropriate response. So I can thank you for your appropriate response in so many ways and, and your friendship. Ah, uh, well, it's been a tough week, hasn't it? It's been a tough summer. I'm, uh, I think all of us, I'm sure, have been following, or many of us have been following the news out of Afghanistan and uh, fears, especially for the women and girls and those who were connected with the United States there, um, fears for all those who are attempting to leave right now and the people of Haiti with the massive earthquake followed by a tropical storm moving in and um, the lack of really a full, fully functioning government. So there's a lot of suffering that I think is um, close to our hearts right now. Uh, and I just really want to acknowledge that, that, that each of us carries that in different ways, but, um, but each of us is touched by it. Uh, not to mention the resurgence of the pandemic. So uh, with all that, I'm aware that that's the water we're swimming in tonight together. And I'll try to say a few words that might um, might be helpful. As uh, my longtime teacher, Zoketsu Norman Fisher, always says, and if it's not helpful... Just sit zazen, and that's a great thing too. It doesn't really matter whether you listen or not. <laughs> so, so, uh, but it's offered in that spirit anyway. And I, uh, the the title of this talk is something like "Living in the White Water, Living in the Waves." So I want to talk about waves for a while. A few years ago, now I was at. Uh, a beach, um, one that Tigan and other people who have spent time at Green Gulch or in the Bay Area know well, the Tennessee Valley Beach, just south of Muir Beach, where Green Gulch is. And I was, I was there and it was a beautiful day and I was photographing these, these gorgeous breakers. It's a, it's a spectacular spot on the coast. It's actually up a trail, so you can't drive there. And I was about 20 feet from the waterline. And as I was, you know, had my, I think I probably was camera up to my face. Um, suddenly, I realized that the water without my knowing it was um, around my feet. And it, I mean, it looked just like any other wave. Um, but it was first, it was around my feet, and then it was around my knees, and it was getting higher. And I turned and started running for high ground. And I fell because the, the sand was actually getting waterlogged from this sneaker wave, from a rogue wave. And then the water was up to my waist. And at that point, I experienced the sudden clear bodily knowledge that if I didn't get out of that wave, it was going to pull me out with it when it went back out. I made it out. I am here this evening, so we know that I survived this wave, but I was uh, soaked and I was um, shaken. And it reminded me of how 
our life can change in an instant. And I later learned that that place is somewhat famous for its sneaker waves, for its rogue waves, which form uh, under, you know, particular circumstances, the kind of the underground, underwater topography, and that a number of people have drowned there over the years. And so I'm grateful that my life went on. In the last um, six months or so of my life, I've experienced a, another kind of rogue wave. In February, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis, which is a progressive autoimmune illness that can affect the joints, other connective tissue, and uh, lungs and heart. And um, it involves some pretty heavy medications to treat it. Uh, and and um, I have now developed secondary complications from the medications. And what that's meant for me currently is that uh, fatigue has become a daily companion in my life. So much so that um, in just a couple of weeks, I'm going to be uh, going on medical leave from my position as the lead minister of the church that I've been serving for the last four years. And I can tell you that just like that wave at the Tennessee Valley Beach, uh, I was not planning on any of this. And I think about uh, Tigan's uh, health challenges that, that I think are better now, but peaked uh, a few years ago and um, also not planned uh, and, and how that affected his life and the life of the Sangha. Um, these, these arisings that, that change everything. I think almost everyone who's lived long enough have experienced some moment like that um, or know someone who has when everything changes. Maybe it's a phone call in the middle of the night or the unexpected modern version of the pink slip, or a conversation with a doctor. There's a, a writing from uh, the Zen teacher, John Tarrant, about his cancer diagnosis that I think it's, a, it's an interesting quote because you can see his practice. You can see his capacity to observe his own mind and experience, even at this very intense moment of receiving his diagnosis. So I wanted to share it with you. The diagnosis seemed all right at the time I got it, but I observed that the small consulting room became large. Time slowed down and everyone's eyes grew big. That room became a ship hanging in space, a ship I can still visit if I wish and sometimes do. That moment was the last moment when I hadn't quite absorbed the news, when I didn't quite have cancer yet. As I said at the beginning, I... I believe that we are living in a time of wave after wave that are not only personal waves, 
which can happen to any of us at any time, but global waves uh, that touch um, where the waters touch each one of us in some way. The whole world is experiencing white water. But I also, before I, before I go too far from the personal, I, I want to mention that there are also big waves, which are not tragedies, but no less dramatic, humbling, transforming, such as falling in love, really falling in love for the first time or the 10th time, or the birth of a child or the power of an idea that sweeps you away and calls you to a new life, maybe even against your will in one way or another. So I've been thinking about how we respond to big waves, how we respond to whitewater times. And if there might be an art to riding the waves of life, like whitewater kayaking or tai chi or surfing. And this is my exploration of those questions. Years ago, I saw a documentary called Riding Giants. I highly recommend it. Um, It's about the people who ride the largest waves in the world. Uh, And um, a lot of um, interviews and footage. These are 30, 40, 50 foot waves. And I was fascinated by the idea that some people would choose to enter the ocean when everyone else is getting out. (laughs) When everyone else is like, I'm not going near that place and would willingly meet massive, dangerous walls of water in a spirit of play and joy. I was in a difficult time in my life at at that time, uh, actually dealing with a, a different illness, but still dealing with what felt like a big wave. And this, this documentary really helped me. <laughs> it really... It really gave me a different view of, of waves. I think this is part of what it means to ride the waves of our life, is finding ways of saying yes to them. When I was much younger, in my 20s, I realized that I, I had this idea that I that was not really like fully formed, but just kind of informed my life, that when difficult things happened, it was sort of a mistake, something gone wrong in the midst of an otherwise smooth life. I don't know if this resonates for you. You remember feeling that way or if it still kind of feels that way. Uh, And I, I do think this is a, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way, but more a descriptive way. I think this is a very, um, white middle-class American idea that most of the world and many people in America uh, 
much younger than their 20s um, know this. They, they know that it's, um, it's not a mistake. It's, it's the nature of things. But at that time, for me, I suddenly realized that life by its very nature includes disasters, accidents, and unexpected changes. They are not aberrations. They are part of life. I'm just going to say that again. They are not aberrations. They are part of life. Just as waves are part of the ocean. And those of you who've been around for a little while know that this was a very central understanding uh, for the Buddha's teaching as well, for Shakyamuni Buddha. And the, there's a very famous verse from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddhist, Buddha's sayings, number 277, where he spoke these words. All formations are impermanent. When one sees this with wisdom, one comes out of suffering. All formations are impermanent. When one sees this with wisdom, one comes out. In other words, when we don't understand that everything is impermanent, we suffer. When we finally really understand fully, that is a gateway to joy and to freedom, even though it seems to the small self like the worst news ever. It's not. The, the, uh, what's, what makes it hard is our running away from it, our delusion. Um, I'm a, a big fan of the poet uh, David White. Some of you might know his work. It's W-H-Y-T-E. And he has these um, sort of prose poems that are uh, meditations on various uh, human experiences. And this is from one on heartbreak that I think ties in. Heartbreak is inescapable. Yet we use the word heartbreak as if it only occurs when things have gone wrong. But heartbreak may be the very essence of being human, of being on the journey from here to there, and of coming to care deeply for what we find along the way. You know, when I think one of the misunderstandings about Buddhism and Zen in particular by people who aren't engaged with it is that somehow it makes you this kind of cold fish who doesn't feel as much as other people. Uh, and I think sometimes people are drawn to Zen because they're hoping for that, right? Uh, maybe I won't have to feel as much. Um, Speaking as someone who's been engaged with practice for mm, coming up on not quite 40 years, um, I think that it, uh, it actually op it opens you to more heartbreak. <laughs> not less. Sorry, every, anyone who's new to practice, uh, but really they should tell you this when you start. <laughs> but it's heartbreak that it breaks open the heart. And we all need that. Right? We're living in a world where we need more broken hearts that can respond. But respond in a particular way. And, and so um, uh, 
I think there are ways that we can work with with this, with these waves and with this heartbreak. Um, I wanted to introduce you, if you haven't heard it before, to a Japanese phrase that has been important for me. Um, and it's actually been pretty important even in this most recent version of what I'm, my life, <laughs> otherwise known as my life, uh, which is shikataganai. Uh, so shikataganai is, um, translates more or less, and like a lot of important Japanese words, it's only like this is only a partial translation. Um, but one way it's translated is what is is. What is is. And I first heard this word when I was at uh, Manzanar, the Japanese internment camp in the um, east of the Sierra for the first time about 2006. And I, uh, there's a powerful visitor center there. And I was in the visitor center there and, and watching a film about the people of Manzanar and what happened during the years that they were there. And there was an old man who was a survivor of Manzanar um, speaking. And he said this, he said, Shikataganai. What is, is. That's part of how we found our way through it. And the other thing that they showed in this film were like what it was like when they got there. And it's desert, super dry and barren and rocky. And how they, in like literally months, created gardens. Like created this incredible flowering of culture that was literally behind barbed wire. And I, I went out, actually, I've, I've written an essay on this because it was a, it was a, it was a life changing experience. I, I ended up finding out that there was the remains of one of the gardens, um, in, out in the desert because everything's dry again, of course. And I went out and saw it and saw how they had made beauty in that place of suffering. And if you think about it, you know, if you're there as a Japanese, American person in, in the, you know, after Pearl Harbor, they had no idea whether they would survive that experience. What would, um, and, and, uh, how long they would be there. And so what they did is they said, Shikataganai, and they got to work making beauty and, uh, taking care of each other. So I think that um, a wave, whatever it might be, is a very different experience if the whole time you're thinking, stop, this shouldn't be happening. Not in my life, not in my world, not, no, no. Rather than, right, this is the nature of life. They don't like it, but here it is. Waves hit everyone sooner or later. Or if you're feeling, you know, inspired by Japanese culture that day, shikataganai. And then, if you're really wild and lucky, you might even be able to come into that feeling of the people who ride those big waves. That, um, that we can actually surf. Um, and and that doesn't mean pretending 
that there isn't suffering for ourselves and others. It means um, working with the circumstances, just as a surfer works with the waves. Um, I actually uh, ha- know, know a, uh, a Zen priest who is also a surfer who um, described to me that um, what it's like to be out there and that um, that each time he he doesn't know what's going to happen. Of course, he's not riding huge waves, but you know they look, I think, plenty huge <laughs> when you when you're out there. And you know that um, he is continuously open to the the power and beauty of that experience, even knowing that he could die out there. Surfers die regularly in the waves of California. I wanted to tell another story um, that, um, again, told to me by a friend, um, somebody just like you or me. I think it's kind of an extraordinary story, though, of this, this quality of um, meeting, meeting what's happening. So this woman was hiking in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. She had always wanted to go up there. They were a group of people who were dropped by helicopter uh, up there. And um, they were out away from their camp one afternoon and looked behind them, far behind them. And there was a grizzly bear following them. And it continued to follow them all afternoon. In fact, it became pretty clear that it was tracking them, that it was intentionally following them, and it was getting closer and closer. It was was catching up to them. And finally, they realized, I mean, there was no, there's no trees there, right? It's open tundra. There was nothing they could do, uh, and that the grizzly was going to catch up with them, and they didn't, they didn't have a gun on them, nothing. So uh, they got to the bottom of a small hill and they turned around and they took hands and one of them actually started to sing. I don't know quite how they managed this because their voices must've been trembling, but so, and they just stood there waiting for the wave and trembling and singing. And then the grizzly crested the hill above, above them and it wasn't more than 20 feet away from that group of people. And my friend described that what she felt completely surprised her. She did not feel fear. She felt awe at that moment. The grizzly had the, the light was shining behind it and its guard hairs were, you know, lit by the light that was shining through. And it was the most beautiful thing she had ever seen in her life. And tears just started pouring down her face. And the bear paused and they all looked at each other and then it turned around and walked away. And of course, had it not, I, again, my friend wouldn't have been able to tell me the story, but uh, it was, it was a life changing moment for her. Similarly, I have another friend. This is my friend, Michael Hoffman, who's a Sumier painter. 
who, when he was a very young man, traveled from San Francisco to Asia, this, you know, early, late 70s, early 70s, I think, um, on a Russian freighter. And the Russian freighter left in the middle of the night from the Oakland dock. And um, he remembers standing on the deck as the freighter went underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and out the Golden Gate towards the open ocean. And, um, and, you know, this was, he was really young and he had no idea what he was doing really. And, um, and in the lights from the freighter, he saw ducks on the, and, and because of how it narrows there, the waves can get really big underneath the bridge. So they're really big waves. And he saw ducks bobbing up and down on the top of the wave, each one. And he said that his fear just evaporated. And the, and the image of these ducks just kind of going along as if it was no big deal to be on these big waves um, was like the kind of guiding image for him for decades as he continued to live in Asia, eventually in Japan, um, as an itinerant artist with like no security <laughs> whatsoever. So those ducks like taught him that you can ride the waves of uncertainty. Um, and um, I love that, um, you know, one person learned from a grizzly bear and another person learned from ducks. And one final story uh, that I think uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's like all of these have just come to me over the years, these stories um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a slow learner. And so the, these people have been sent by the Buddhas to think. This story was actually told to me by an older man in my congregation out in Washington state. And, um, he was young at this time. He was out in his, on his uncle's fishing boat on the, out in the open ocean. And there was an enormous storm and, they were pretty sure they were going to die, uh, that the boat was not going to survive it. And there were like huge waves, like breaking over the boat. And he looked out the window and he saw an albatross, which are in that area with a six foot wingspan. Like they're huge birds. Uh, I think actually they may have more than a, they may be more like a 10 foot. I'll ask Laurel. Oh, <laughs> um, and it was just, it was literally gliding outside the window, the porthole of the boat. And it, it accompanied them through the whole storm. And he said that the ease and steadiness of that bird gave him courage and that that courage has stayed with him ever since. So actually, um, I think there's something about the albatross that reminds me of zazen, and um, and that when we do zazen, we can touch into that kind of steadiness. Or maybe we're more like the ducks. I don't know. You can decide whether you're the ducks or the grizzly bear or the albatross. But you know how it, just the dignity. There's a great dignity in zazen. And so one of the things I would really invite you to do if, if the waves are hitting hard 
is to um, is to really, uh, as as all Zen teachers say, you know, more zazen, more zazen. <laughs> you know, but it's true, right? Because it can connect us with what can find steadiness um, in the midst of everything else. But I I I don't want to just leave this at this point um, because I think it's important to say that sometimes waves knock you over, right? Um, If you've ever body surfed on the beach, whatever, you've had this experience. There are waves that are too big to ride, that tumble you, that knock the breath out of you, that take you down. So what do you do when the wave has pinned you to the sand and is like pounding on you? Uh, And I think this is a relevant question for all of us right now. I think for one thing, it is a deeply humbling experience and we should allow ourselves to be humbled by the, by powers that are greater than our will and our, even our capacity. Because if you've had that happen, you know that all your ideas of yourself as a competent together adult just fall to pieces. And you are in, just in this raw reality of your response. It may be, your, maybe your response is very unimpressive at that point. So this is where, I mean, we were talking about steadiness and, and the wisdom of recognizing impermanence. Um, this is where compassion comes in. My friends, Kanon, Kuan Yin, back here. Compassion for yourself if you have fallen if the wave is too much for you and compassion for others, for the whole world, all of us caught in one way or another by waves. So I'll just close by saying that, you know, in that place of humility, there is room for learning, for receiving, for beginner's mind. And that, um, in that movie that I was talking about, the, the Riding Giants, um, there are people that are friends of the people who are, you know, currently trying to get over a huge wave. And they're on jets, like jets, big jet, jet skis. And then when their friend falls, which is kind of inevitable to fall in these waves, and they can't swim out, their friends go out and risk their own lives in order to save that person from the wave. So sometimes you're the rescuer. Sometimes you're the one that needs to be rescued. Those are not separate roles. They're two sides of the same coin. And we need always to show up for one another. Uh, This is a very important part of being in whitewater, of being in the waves. Um, And so, you know, face that what is, is. Find that calm that is under the waves, that's the albatross's wide wings that are there in our zazen and in our breath. And most of all, let's take care of each other. Thank you so much, Florence. Um, so now we have time to open this up for comments, responses, questions. Uh, please feel free. If you're visible, you can just raise your hand. If not, you can go to the participants window and just uh, 
there's a place on the bottom where you can hit the raise hand button. And Wade, maybe you can help me uh, call on people. But uh, Laurel Gishin, please start us off. Laura, it's so lovely to see you. Likewise. Very, very sorry to hear about your illness. That's something that's in my family, so I'm familiar with that. It's a tough one. Um, what a lovely talk with grizzlies and ducks and albatrosses. You know, albatrosses have a 12-foot wingspan. The next time you give this talk. <laughs> I, think, I think my friend said six feet, so I should no. go, you're right. 12, it's, oh my God. It's, it's the biggest wingspan of any bird on the wow. planet. Wow. And uh, they also live the longest of any on the planet. Oh. There's an albatross that was banded in 1956 that's still alive who's been named Wisdom. Ah, love it. <laughs> and of course, the albatross was the character in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. It was the, the, the sin of the mariner that he killed the albatross and carried that guilt with him. It's a, quite an image. Um, thank you so much for being with us and giving this inspiring talk. And I hope to connect with you again soon. So I actually would love, um, you, you're welcome to ask or comment on anything, but I would also love to hear if you, what your resources have been, what you have found to in your life as you uh, meet big waves or yeah. find yourself in whitewater. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and the reason I'm resonating so much with your talk is that I find my strength or whatever the right word is in uh, in the natural world and connecting with uh, the other sentient beings, the plants and animals that we're just one species of in this magnificent uh, planet of green and blue and every other color. Um, I was recently uh, spent some time in Europe, and one of the amazing uh, realizations I came to, which happens every time I go outside of the new world, is that we are so blessed in North and South America to have so much intact nature here. We don't realize how much of the rest of the world has lost has civilized it beyond recognition so coming back last week to the prairies and the lake and the river here and the magnificent little piping plovers at uh, Montrose Beach uh, uh, anyway that's where I find my uh, 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 connection with what, what's real, what's true, what's uh, uh, strong. He's doing a whole other talk on shorebirds. Might have to do that. <laughs> they're they're pretty good with the waves too. Thank you, Kyoshin. Other 
comments, responses, stories, whatever. Florence, thank you uh, so much for your talk. It's always, I actually really, always really look forward to your talks. I think they're a lovely uh, mix of really nice, um, well, I guess spirituality, I don't know, it's a weird word, um, and humor and, and uh, fun facts and <laughs> <laughs> kind of a very nice hodgepodge of everything. So I always really look forward to hearing you talk. Um, uh, I, I was one of those uh, white middle class people who grew up thinking that um, that uh, problems in life are, are wrong. Uh, and I, I've struggled and I still struggle quite a bit to um, uh, change my view about that and, and, and say yes to those things. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, uh, something for me that um, has grounded me and has always grounded me is, is music. Um, I play um I, I studied it in school, but I, I play several instruments and I love listening to it in any style and uh, not, I don't know, not so much for like, I, it's nice to have like an emotion conveyed. But I think for me, when I experience music, um, I feel like I am um, like my truest self. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, like I don't question myself. I don't judge myself. I don't analyze. I don't do anything. It's so direct. Um, and I just am whether I'm playing it or listening to it. And so I always really try to cherish that. Um, so thank you for, um, your questions and for, um, your compassion as always. <laughs> and of course, music wouldn't exist without impermanence. I mean, it's the nature of music. One impermanent moment after another makes it possible. Ed. Uh, thanks again, Florence. Like, like Mike said, it's, I was looking forward to your talk because I think you, you visit you visit us with your uh, presence and it's so graceful pretty much every six months or something along those lines. So there's a rhythm to it, a pattern, and you, you must know that it's um, anticipated. <laughs> so really appreciated. And I, I'm looking forward to um, if it ever happens, maybe, maybe not a physical visit. Because it's a very, as you know, it's also a very different experience. Um, I went to a, I was in a school for a while where where I had, a, I was in a house with a number of roommates and we had three magazine subscriptions. We had Time and we had Surfer Magazine and we had Surfing Magazine. So those were our three magazines. And of course, you know, you can read Time pretty quickly sometimes and and so I would start reading the articles and either those one, I couldn't tell the difference between them initially, but toward the end of the year, there was a different focus. And the one did write articles in the big wave thing. And I would read this and I'm like, I don't understand. I don't understand this at all. This sounds like getting on one of those carnival Ferris wheels that aren't well maintained or something by choice. Because <laughs> we don't have anything like this in Chicago. Of wave. <laughs> And then I was, you know, I was 
I don't, and I, then I started having ideas about maybe my life is really narrow, but I've been reading and you mentioned uh, David White, a poet that you like. So I've been reading uh, James Redfield who comments extensively on the poetry of Greek poetry, but primarily Homer. And I thought I might paraphrase very briefly something that he wrote uh, about the character of poetic knowledge as opposed to cultural knowledge and cultural knowledge giving us Lenina's meaning systems that suggest constructions and certain artificial uh, uh, mechanisms of understanding the world, which also allows us maybe to even broach the question of what is understanding and what is recognition. Two favorite objects of investigation among Buddhists, it seems. But um, uh, Redfield wrote, at least the way I wrote it myself in commentary, what is necessary and yet unjustifiable, in fact, justifies itself at the end as an object of poetic knowledge. What is incomprehensible in experience becomes patterned and even beautiful in the imitation of experience. And since poetic knowledge, which claims to stand outside experience, is itself a human achievement, poetry claims for itself a place both outside and within the human world as it recovers for man a tragic meaning in the experience of meaninglessness. <laughs> so when you mention your man uh, and the ducks and the waves and the Golden Gate Bridge and so forth, that's an image of juxtaposition that suggests nothing but contradiction, it seems. But in fact, it is a, it's, a, it's actually a composition. Someone, he witnessed it, right? And so he arrived at a, at a kind of a understanding or, or reconciliation that was entirely internal to him. And maybe he, maybe he assigned it an actionable response but in a way, it's, it's merely maybe also a witness of his own experience in the world as he experienced it. And, it's that, and that alone is its, is its uh, creditworthiness. Is so thank you very much for your talk. It brings all that back to mind. Yeah, it actually brings you. that surfer, that surfer, surfer magazine to mind. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, I, I hadn't thought about this, but each of those stories because I, I know the people and I know what it meant to them. Though we don't use this word much in Soto, but those were Kencho moments for each of those people. Those were moments of, of glimpsing something beyond what the, the sort of, you know, ordinary construction knows. And, um, and so in a way, deeply poetic. There's a reason that, you know, enlightenment um, experiences are almost always written in poetic form, I think. It's because the other forms don't don't quite get there. Um, hi, Florence. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I too really enjoyed it and was looking forward to it. I heard you speak. I think maybe last time, maybe six months ago. Um, but I I was really riveted by that. <laughs> grizzly story but also the um albatross i didn't know that about albatrosses and and that wingspan you know just 
flying along that boat, but um, I've been sitting here just thinking about, you know, your question, like what um, helps us to ride the waves. And I was kind of thinking about a couple of things, but all sort of having to do with um, the hour before it gets dark. And then maybe even when it's dark, that something about like, for me, when I'm facing something, I feel like it's like I wake up and it's like, I have to ride the wave that day or all day. And there's something about like the hour before it gets dark, that that sort of softening where I'm in touch with something else. And so often I take walks in the last hour before dark, or um, sometimes I sit on my deck with my husband or like I go sit on a friend's patio or in their yard, you know, this summer. And um, but also just that thing of, I don't know, just the like nighttime as a, as a time too, when you can relax from stuff, maybe, you know, like reading or writing or, um, yeah, I don't know. Those are, that, that, I think for me, those are the things that are helping me ride like current waves. Well, you know, it's always been interesting to me that in, this would be another great topic, within Zen, um, the, some of the regular ideas about light and dark will get reversed. So that um, in the light is when our kind of discriminating mind, you know, this and that and you know, this is good and that is bad and all of that is like active, active, active. But in the dark, everything is 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 not separate, right? So that softness that you talk about, you know, where the where the heart and mind can can relax um, in the dark. I love that actually. It's really beautiful. Any thoughts, Tigan? I'm just enjoying. I'm just enjoying. I enjoyed your talk very much. Oops, my. Hold on a second. I think I'm muted. Nope, can we you, can hear you. Oh, great. Um, yeah, no, I just enjoyed your talk very much and your stories. And uh, yeah, we're in the middle of so many waves in our world. And then you know, I, I talk to people who have waves happening in their own lives and. Um, you know, and today there's the finally, well, sad end to the Afghanistan war. Maybe it was predictable from the beginning. Uh, but um, uh, I think riding the waves is a wonderful way of thinking about what we're all dealing with in this world. And, uh, and, and uh, what you said about... Um, it doesn't fix it. We have to feel the sadness. I think that's really important. But also, um, we've been talking a lot recently here about Sangha and how we just face all this together and all together listening to your stories. It's um, uh, you know, a way of, of looking at these waves of suffering all around us in the world and seeing something deeper. And so anyway, I appreciate your talk and I appreciated all the comments so far. And uh, Eve has something else to say. So please go ahead. I think you are muted, Eve. Yes, you mentioned David White and 
I ran across a poem of his like um, yesterday, um, and I I wondered if. Well, actually, I'm trying to find it. Um, yeah, I had it. Now it went away. But um, I don't know. Do you know the one? It, it's about walking, um, walking through the forest so you don't make a sound. Hmm. I don't know if I do know that one. You should see if you could find it for us. Could yeah. Some poetry. Well, I mean, I had a question about it because I wasn't sure if I understood it or I wondered how you understood it. Um, By the way, the name of uh, the book that I was quoting from that has these words um, is Consolations. Um, It's an unusual book because they, they aren't kind of traditional poems, but they are his kind of interior exploration of different human human states sadness or joy or whatever the 10,000 joys and sorrows as we say and he has actually pretty strong uh, Zen connections I don't know if you remember Tigan but used to be that he would come and do a, a, a benefit for San Francisco Zen Center every oh. couple of years. Like like at, at um, oh gosh, what's the big, um, you know. Up on, up on Larkin, uh, that, church, that church up there. No, yeah, or even one time it was even at whatever that big downtown, like, you Grace know. Grace Cathedral. Yeah, yeah, so huge, huge venues where tons of people would come and it was like major major money for Zen Center because he really believed in, in what Zen Center was, was doing, which I just thought was really sweet. Yeah. So I, I found the poem. Oh, let's hear it. Please. Okay, so it's called, it's called sometimes um, by David White. Sometimes if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound You come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. Mm. I so what what uh, what caught you about that? The the line about requests to stop what you were doing right now and to stop what you were becoming while you do it. Um. And I guess that's one thing that the waves do, yeah. And what we do when we sit down in meditation. Yes. That's its gift. Mm, thank you for that, Eve. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. It was beautiful to hear those words. So there's time for one or maybe two further comments if anybody has something they want to offer yes hi co hi 
one of the things that um, struck me in the albatross story is that I, I imagine that there was clearly a reason the, the albatross stayed by the boat. And so I liked that the albatross was benefiting from their plight in some ways and giving them courage the, the way that those two worked back and forth. So I just wanted to share that. Mm -hmm. I think the guy who told me the story felt like it, that albatross was an angel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Any other last angel stories? Sometimes it's demons that catch us and opens, open up something. So, yeah, these experiences you were talking about, you know, uh, experiences of realization, experiences of, oh, yeah, of awakening, whatever. And also, you know, in each of those stories, there was a lot of fear, mm -hmm. right? And we, we want to run away from fear. Yeah. But actually, fear can be the... We're willing to stay with it. We don't have any choice. Like people with the grizzly bear, you know, you don't know what might be on the other side. You use the word dignity, and I think there's a dignity to just, you know, they talk about people who run to fear, you know, like first, first responders. But uh, moving towards our fear, moving towards our anger, which sometimes... You know, I, I don't like, I want to avoid, but it, it it allows us to open up something. So thank you for opening up so much in this talk tonight. Really appreciate it. Uh, unless there's some last. Uh, well, I, I just wanted to say thank you for the hidden lamp. Mm -hmm. So I went to a workshop based on the book and read the book and it's a treasure. Thank you very much. I will mention, so September 18th, 19th, right that weekend, uh, Sue Moon and I, she's the, the, uh, my co-editor on the book, are going to be doing a weekend at Upaya, but it's online. It's, mm -hmm. it's just by donation from the Hidden Lamp focused on the old women stories. Great. It's going to rock. Oh, cool. Roshi Joan is going to come in and do something, too. Please send us uh, a, yeah. a little blurb about that in the link, and I'll and I'll yeah. uh, I'll put I'll put it out for people. So yeah. thank you. So maybe at this point, Wade, if you if you would lead us in the uh, four bodhisattva vows. And could I just ask that we really oh, send whatever merit has come from our time together um, to those um, suffering in Afghanistan and Haiti right now? Yes. Thank you. Um, one moment, I will put the uh, words on the screen for whoever may find that useful. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, 
I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it.